0: To capture that essence and that emotion was more important for us because it gave light to like who these people are and like who the Yurok and Kedok people are in this day and age, and like what is a modern day Indigenous family rather than one that's distanced and romanticized.
1: Brian Smith here, and welcome to the Dream Path Podcast, where I try to get inside the heads of talented creatives from all over the world my goal is to demystify and humanize the creative process and make it accessible to everyone now let's jump in Raika Zetabshi and shandine tomer on the show Raika was my second guest on the podcast back in early 2019 right after she won the academy award for best documentary short with her film period end of sentence which is still streaming on netflix she was on the show again last year with producer and cinematographer Sam Davis to promote their documentary A Woman's Place: The Butcher, The Chef, and The Restaurant Tour. This is Rika's third time on the show. This time to talk about Long Line of Ladies, a documentary she co-directed with Shandine Tome, who hails from Albuquerque, New Mexico. Shandine's breakout award-winning short film Mud premiered at Sundance in 2018. Shandine's narrative projects have been selected for multiple Sundance Fellowships, and she was also selected as a finalist for the Rolex Mentor and Protégé Arts Initiative with Spike Lee. Raika and Shandine's documentary, Long Line of Ladies, follows a girl and her tribal community as they prepare for her ihuk, the once dormant coming-of-age ceremony of the Koduk tribe of Northern California. In addition to premiering at Sundance, Long Line of Ladies will be featured at South by Southwest this year. In this episode, I talked to Raika and Shandine about how they found this story, what kinds of decisions they made going into the shoot, what it was like co-directing with each other for the first time, the challenges they faced shooting with 16 millimeter film as opposed to using a digital camera, and what they hope to do next. So without further ado, let's jump into my chat with Rika Zetabshi and Shandine Tome. Shandine Tom, Raika Zetabshi, welcome to Dreampath Podcast. <laughs>
0: Thank you. I feel like you're the first person who said both of our names right. I mean, I know you know Rika from before, but it's still, it feels good.
1: <laughs> well, I I try to you know pretend like this is all just comes naturally to me, but I spend <laughs> a lot of time trying to figure out names before I start. I ask publicists, you know, can you send me a phonetic spelling, that type of thing. But for you, Shandine, I did look up other youtube videos where you were featured and tried to get it right and with rika of course Rika and i go back three years yeah she was the second guest on my podcast so she's old school That's og uh guest original guest
2: your hair is a lot shorter than last time i spoke with you i think last time we were like in the thick of the pandemic and i don't think you would gotten a haircut
1: oh yeah yeah i had the (laughs) pandemic fro going on it was pretty out of control It's good to see you both. I've watched this film a couple of times, Long Line of Ladies, and I'm so glad that you found the time to talk to me. I know you have a busy press schedule today with South by Southwest. Tell me what's going on with the film festival circuit in South by Southwest. Is it going to be featured in that festival?
0: Yeah, it is. I think we're both pretty excited for it. We're both going to be there in person, which will be like really wild, I think.
1: Oh, that's fantastic.
0: So, yeah, I mean, we just were so hoping to be seeing it in person at Sundance. And yeah, now we're even more stoked. It's just like pent up, like wanting to see people. So, Mm -hmm. it'll be a good celebration and reunion. Ati will be there. So, it'll be a lot of fun.
1: And you just missed the cutoff for Sundance. I mean, in terms of, you know, I I think if Sundance would have been held in March, you would have been there in Park City in person, but it just didn't work out. And what a bummer because that Park City experience is kind of singular in the film festival world. Shandine, you actually had something in Sundance back in 2018. Isn't that right?
0: Yeah, I did. And I've been to the festival a few different times for fellowships and that sort of thing. So, um, but nothing beats like being at a festival. And I remember watching films last year online and I was like, I feel so bad for these filmmakers because they don't get to see like, or experience their film in a theater and with actual people. And then it happened to us and I was like, Oh no, darn, this really sucks. But I mean, it also made accessibility a lot better. Um, Like Mm -hmm. people that I would never know who were able to like watch the film. And then like after started watching other shorts and that sort of thing. And um, it was just pretty cool to see like all different types of people be able to access a film festival. Whereas like before it's just kind of like only the people who can afford it or like have press passes or that sort of thing.
1: It did seem to be like an elitist experience when I was there in person. I attended just as a film goer for a few years. And then I attended as a member of the press. And still, when you're there as a member of the press, it still seems very exclusive and not in a good way. You know, Just kind of like, well, why can't more people experience this? But then they find this online way to show the films. And I love it. I love being able to watch Sundance films from the comfort of your own home. And I don't think they're going to go back to exclusively in person i think there's always going to be an online component for these film festivals now which is fantastic
2: yeah and the hybrid component is the most exciting because like Shendine said i mean with shorts too it's like that community aspect is so important with shorts just being in the theater like kind of taking it around the feeling of like Taking the film around the country to different theaters and like experiencing it with different audiences from different places and having conversations with them and just feeling like the energy of the room. So I think the hybrid experience is like really the sweet spot. And I think hopefully that's where festivals are headed for good.
1: Yeah. South by Southwest, in my opinion, is a lot more rock and roll than Sundance, you know, just a lot more eclectic in terms of the types of movies that they tend to accept and also the types of art that they feature, you know, comedy and music. And that, that this is going to be a fantastic experience.
2: Yeah, you would fit right in. I mean, with your background, it's on point.
1: Yeah, I had press credentials last year for it, but it was just online last year, unfortunately. But yeah, maybe I'll make my way there. I've never been to Austin before.
0: Me neither.
1: Yeah. So tell me, how did you find this story? I've never heard of this ritual before nor this passage of time of 120 years that went by where they stopped participating in this ritual. So how did you find the story and how did you go about bringing the story to film?
2: Um, well I think it kind of dates back to period end of sentence like a- after after the film and the success of the film and working with the pad project and really wanting to find ways that we could sort of flip the narrative like highlighting communities that actually celebrate menstruation. And, you know, there, of course, there are several Native American tribes that have coming of age ceremonies um, for young young girls when they first menstruate. And we came across this post by Pim Allen. Uh, it was online and it was a post about her older daughter's Ehok ceremony. Um, and the Ihuk is specific to the Kaduk tribe of Northern California. Um, And so we just reached out to her kind of just to like get some more information and talk about the film a little bit and realized in that first conversation that her younger daughter, Ati, was actually 13 and she had just had her first period and the family was sort of preparing for her ceremony. And this is, you know, it was sort of a long time coming, you know, it's something that like she had known about for most of her life um, and something that, um, you know, they had been preparing for for many, many months before. Uh, and so, you know, there was just that kind of opened the door to more conversations around this idea of like, are you guys interested in, you know, us making a film about the I-Hook ceremony and and really like you guys, you um, just shedding a light on, on all the support and the love that you give, um, this young girl, like at this time in her life. And then Shundeen, I know can add a lot about kind of the history of like where, you know, where it sort of along the way, um, was taken from them and, and how they've, um, really revived it in, in the past few decades.
0: Yeah. I think, um, there's different, um, situations for different tribes. Uh, I think, Pim puts it well in that like the uh, Keduk and Yurok people were not affected um, until a lot later uh, when it came to colonization and contact of, um, I guess, like westernized people uh, in their area. And so they were a lot later than most tribes that were like further east. Uh, So basically they uh, lay dormant their ceremony like close to the gold rush Um, And kind of like kept it uh, dormant for a while and just like in the 80s had started getting together other ceremonies. But I think the IHUC was one of the last ones that they uh, had come together to try and revive, basically. And so um, they went and started uh, like, I think, in the 90s. Right. Right. (laughs) And basically just went from there and like kind of have built these different generations of people. Uh, of a young woman and like other community members who have like really come together to celebrate a young woman's time in her life, um, where she is coming of age. And so it's just really cool to see, uh, I guess, like the history and like how it coincides with like, their way of reclaiming their ceremonies and their space. uh, But also like that they've had it all along. And it's not like it was necessarily taken away or it was like, I mean, it was like banned in a sense, but like they still had it within them and their community is still like very alive and well today.
1: And the colonization that occurred or the, the gold rush that happened in California, so th- there's a direct connection between the sexual violence that occurred as a result of the, the westernization of that area of the state and going dormant, as you say, on that ritual.
0: Yeah, I think, I mean, as with like a lot of different histories all over the US and like really all over the world, a a lot of colonization brings traumatic things that happen to the community, a lot of things that happen to our women um, and just the community as a whole. I think it really shifts perspectives, puts us into very, um, I guess, like a mode of survival. Um, But I think with that, we've learned uh, as a people to adapt and like find ways to do things differently and carry on our traditions and um, each other with that.
1: Fantastic. I find it fascinating that the research that I did on the native language, Kuruk language, that there were only, I think, according to Wikipedia, like 15 people who spoke the language full time back in 2015 and were you able to speak to anybody who still spoke the native tongue when you were making this project
0: I'm not entirely sure I'm sure a few people did um I know like I come from uh Dene people and we're one of the largest and so like we uh, fortunately don't have i guess like language dying out in that way like it's uh it's like Rosetta stoned and like everything. And so
2: mm-hmm. like
0: there's dictionaries and that sort of stuff and there's elders and, um, and well, like it may not be like alive and well, like it's definitely like not in, um, I guess like scarcity, uh, for the most part, but I know like how difficult it is for smaller tribes to kind of hold on to, that knowledge, uh, and with the language comes stories, and it comes history. Yeah. Uh, and so, like, it's so important to keep that um, alive. And I know that, like, they definitely talk a lot about it, like within their stories, and um, like with what Pim was saying. I mean, like, just like everything that they're doing is like very, like hands-on and trying to like relearn like they like Pim even took classes to like relearn how to do like maple bark skirts and that sort of thing and so like it's it's a very um uh I guess just they put their egos aside in that way. And like, <laughs> unlike Navajo people who t- sometimes tend to be like, no, this is tradition, or at least in my experience is very like regimented. Sometimes I feel like they, mm-hmm. they feel the need and, and the, the want to kind of continue that knowledge and continue that learning and history and everything like that. So it's exciting. I'm not exactly sure if... I, does Lauren speak... I'm not exactly... I
2: believe, yeah, and I believe um, Julian um, Lang, who is um, in the film, actually, he's like, you know, comes in towards the end of the film. This is the day before Ati and her family leave for her ceremony. Um, There's sort of, uh, you know, everyone's like sitting around together um, in a circle and they're talking about... Um, Or, you know, Julian um, and her uncle, great uncle Brian Tripp, are giving her advice um, sort of about the future, not just the ceremony, but also like the future of being a woman and how you carry yourself through the world. Um, And it's really those people who have, I think, been integral in in sort of bringing back and preserving the language of the Mm. people I know that really like. You know, those are the people that um, really are the experts in in that. And Pim is also just an integral part of the community as well. As far as not just reviving ceremony but language, I know you know her father was really influential as well. And they're just a really, it's just a really incredible group of people. Um, and and I remember Pim. I think in the film she says, um, or maybe she didn't say this in the film. I think this was just a conversation we were having outside of the film. That it, it's really interesting that. With this ceremony, the Ati and kind of her generation, it's the first generation um, of girls who are having a ceremony where there was one generation before them who had who actually had the opportunity to also have a ceremony. So it's the first time in a long time where that knowledge is actually like that firsthand knowledge of having the ceremony is directly being relayed to them. Mm -hmm. Um, And I know she was really excited about that. And that's a really really cool thing for them because to have that firsthand knowledge as opposed to being like in Pim's position or her generation's position where you're really just trying to piece together whatever you can, um, I I know is really important and exciting. Um, She also just talked a lot about how you know, how, how they're sort of like taking the ceremony and trying to adapt it in 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 a more like sort of modern way. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, there's there's just a lot to unearth there. But it's interesting that we're talking about this because that little bit of information or co- historical context is given up front in the film. And then the film sort of goes on this journey and you don't ever come back to that. You know, there's never any sort of discussion around the history or or any of those like sort of detailed things. And I think that was very intentional. It was really just about kind of stepping back and not talking about history or not um, not having a film that really is all about sort of information or teaching people, but rather like standing back and just kind of observing just like the, the, the like love and the support around her.
1: Yeah, that's my takeaway from the film is that it's really not a historical documentary. It's, you know, there's context. I mean, you provide that context, but it's really about a relationship that fathers and mothers have with their children, their daughters, and the beautiful journey that you document that intuitively I would think that as a filmmaker where I would want to go is let's go into the woods. Like, let's... Let's actually keep going. And your parting shot is her walking into the woods. And I thought that that was part of the beauty of the film is that journey is very private and sort of unknowable. Like you could bring a camera with her and her spiritual family on their ancestral land, but it's an internal, like you're not going to be able to capture that on a camera or on a mic. And so you don't even try to do it. And you just kind of leave it to the imagination of what's going to happen in those four days when she's in the forest but the build-up to it is uh, i was telling rika that i it was brought me to tears where the build-up to it is is so sweet because the dad is not a, a stereotypical macho father reluctant to use the word menstruation or period and he doesn't shy away from that and he tells this lovely story of when he got the call From Ati's other sister, I believe, when he was on a construction site, that she had her period. And he says, Guys, and he tells his coworkers, I've got to leave, guys. I got to go, you know, make sure she's okay. It's those moments that you captured that really touched me. So how did you, as filmmakers, decide what to try to capture going into this project and what to leave out? Because I know with a 22-minute film, you have to make really tough decisions. And maybe there's a whole lot more footage in the can than I'm sure there is, a lot of footage that you had to cut. But what types of decisions did you make going in about what story you were going to tell?
0: Yeah, I think one of the first kind of things that we really talked about as like co-directors was like trying to capture the essence of like what it means to be a community and going through something together Um, and kind of like how that has been interpreted in the past like a lot of ceremonial films or like uh, documentary uh, documentaries uh, like go about it in a way that's very, um, I guess, ethnographic and like I guess have a logical approach to like what is the ceremony like. This is day one of the ceremony, day two, and it and it gets explained in a way that is very, I guess. Uh, logical (laughs) and so conventional yeah yeah and so like i think like what i know from like growing up and i didn't participate in a lot of ceremonies but i feel like there's something about like being indigenous in the way that like we relate to each other and like who our families are and like how we interact and like that is like what makes ceremony important it's not just like an individualized thing like it's a lifelong journey and it's uh it's something that you practice every day. Uh and like while the ceremony is something that's more for you and more reflective, uh like to to capture that would be meaningless, I feel like in the film. Like it, I, I feel like the the big importance of everything is being able to see like how does the family practice who they are in every single uh every day, like in every moment in little things. Like whether it's like Ati with her friends at a campfire or like like with her cousins or like them in their backyard practicing the dance, like it happens in so many subtle ways. And so I think to capture that essence and that emotion... Was more important for us because it gave light to like who these people are and like who the Yurok and Keduk people are in this day and age, and like what is a modern day Indigenous family rather than one that's distanced and romanticized. Um, and we just wanted to like definitely pay that respect <laughs> because it's there, like they're definitely at the forefront of indigenous lifeways right now. And so it's like so neat to see that and and find ways to to show that through film.
2: And I'll add to um one thing I remember like early conversations Chandine and I were having a lot about was like um just like if you're thinking about the overall narrative like what about conflict? Like where is the conflict in all of this? Oh wait, maybe we're not never going to capture any type of conflict and you're just try, kind of thinking like, you know, as as storytellers you're just programmed to be like, okay, well where is this you know, what is this arc and 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 how does that, you know, where is the conflict and how does that, when does that change happen and how does it happen? And I think it was just really just saying like, if there is no conflict, there is no conflict. Right. We're not going to force it. If it's beautiful and everything is lovely and that's just how they are then wonderful that's like what the story is you know and and hopefully that's something that is interesting to people people don't come away from watching the film thinking oh there is a lack because there wasn't enough conflict or because there wasn't enough tension or stakes in the film but rather they walk away from it and go wow like that's just, you know those are people that are out there and that's how they operate and that's pretty amazing mm. and i think like you know it At this time and age, you know, the world in the world that we're living in, I think that's a really beautiful thing. And I and I um, and I and that's something I think, you know, we're very proud of with the film. And then I'll add another thing, just like creatively, um, the fact that the film was shot on 16 millimeter film. You know, you say like there's a lot more footage in the can. There quite literally was a lot more footage in the can. (laughs) Um, And that was another thing that was really exciting. It's like shooting a documentary on film and that really required us to be very very thoughtful about what we were capturing and um you know whether we were shooting on film or digital it, it wouldn't matter cuz regardless we would we would collaborate as deeply as we did with Pam and her her family to figure out what the story was that we would capture but when you're talking about film it's like you're actually dealing with a really small amount of resources and you have to know going into it, like what you're going to capture. It's not an opportunity where you could just roll the camera for two hours and mm. walk away with a scene that you may or may not use. Yeah. Um. So it, in fact, when it came to the editing process, we actually had like the least amount of footage that, you know, I know Sam has ever dealt with on any project that we've done. So that was, it was the least amount of footage, but it was it, like at that point, we knew more so what the film was than I think ever before.
1: As you may have noticed, there are great resources and advice mentioned in all our episodes. And for many of them, we actually collect all of these resources for you in one easy place. Our newsletter. You can go to dreampathpod.com newsletter to join. It's not fancy. Just an email about each week's episode, featured artists, and resources to help you on your journey now back to the interview so is this the first project that you and sam have worked on where you used actual 16 millimeter film um
2: yeah i never worked with film. i think he's worked with film several times before i think on a documentary once as well but um for for me personally it was like terrifying i mean it was exciting <laughs> but it was also terrifying i'm curious to hear shandian's thoughts now reflecting back you know almost a year later
0: mm-hmm Yeah, I shot uh, my narrative short on film, which is such a different, like you have a completely different mindset. Like I had 10 rolls of film for the whole entire thing and I only shot like seven and a half because I was so scared to like roll Um, and I only had a few takes for like each thing. And so to like be in this and like kind of rolling on conversations. Like one time we were like actually rolling on a conversation that was like, maybe like three hours long, but we were shooting intermittently in between. Um, and it was still like, kind of like, whoa, this is wild that we're shooting this conversation and like, it's actually like rolling out on film. <laughs> and so um, it it was fun. Uh, it was definitely, I guess, freeing in that way but at the same time like you were intentional you like even like about your framing Mm. about like everything and and the way that things were like captured within the frame was like really um trying to get the best out of like what we had yeah and then always rolling on sound too (laughs) we were like keep rolling on sound
1: I, I like that word intentional Because it's kind of the opposite of, say, like a cinema verite documentary where you want to be a fly on the wall and just get lucky after 12 hours of whatever. You guys went in with a plan and executed on that plan and beautifully done. Did you capture anything after her four days in the forest that you decided to not use? Or did you just decide beforehand, you know what, we're not going to go there. The story is going to end when she walks into the forest.
0: We did not shoot the ceremony at all or like after I think it was like trying to like we had initially it was in our mind that like we could possibly do it. And it was an open open conversation that we were having with the family. Um, And I think we kept tossing around different ideas. But I think we all ultimately came to a point where it was like we aren't going to shoot anything that involves the ceremony. And and we kind of stuck with that. I think we like mm-hmm. we we planned out those like last couple of shots that felt like these are gonna be like the goodbyes um or like sending Ati off basically in a way that feels tasteful and is like back and not trying to be like as unobtrusive as possible and really just trying to take a step back because we wanted to leave the audience with a feeling that they are like they are forced to stay where they are and they can't like go along with her. Uh, And I think it, it worked out in the end. I think we were always kind of scared about it, but I think it was definitely a firm choice that we made.
1: Yeah. It's a good choice. And of course, uh, Sam, his style and his lighting or lack of lighting sometimes is so in my opinion it's almost like kind of a signature at this point he's so gifted at being able to shoot in darkness (laughs) and still it feels like you're seeing everything in fact you may be seeing more in the darkness than you would if The lights were on. Shandeen, did you go into the project knowing about Sam's filmography and his approach to light and dark when shooting these films?
0: Yeah, I mean, like I got to watch a lot of his stuff before and I was honestly impressed. And I, I think it was cool to feel like the collaborative nature that we had. Like whenever we had an idea, like while we were shooting, like Sam was always up for it. And I think it was really cool to see, I guess, like his style or like, even if you're like, oh, can you shoot this? Like he would frame it in a way that was like very artistic and intentional and like trying to really, um I guess, like evoke the themes that we wanted, which was like community and relationship to each other and and taking a step back. And I think it was great that like, he's an editor, he's like everything and he's like multi-talented. And I think like mm-hmm. he works like that too. So like, it's cool to see, um I guess, like those different minds that he has, but also just like, just the beauty of the shots I think is like so cool and it's celebratory of, mm-hmm. of exactly, um, the family and and of what we wanted. And I think it just feels so light and organic and, and beautiful. Yeah. I think like, like, uh, there's a, I think we had
2: a very scrappy way of working, um, and usually on every project uh, we're pretty scrappy. But but I always think you can feel it <laughs> in positive ways, like after after the fact with what you capture, just that scrappiness and really leaning into like what you have you know, like, I don't think there was any lighting, right? Shandine, am I am I wrong about this? I don't think there was any lighting. I think it was like, literally just using whatever practicals there were available to us in the house or, you know, in, in whatever environment that we were in. Um, and, you know, that helps keep the crew really lean even though you're like working with film like our ac was also our loader which was probably a lot on him um but he's just like you know super talented as well but um it just it's it's really nice when you can keep a very like intimate scrappy environment you know with the film crew between the family and the film crew yeah you know like we we all became like really good friends like throughout the process of making the film and and, um, and, you know, I just think it probably would have been weird if the crew was any uh, bigger. It's just nicer to keep it intimate that way.
1: Yeah. And I think when you turn on lights, especially lights for film and, and photography, it changes the room. It just changes the vibe. It feels like you're literally in the spotlight. And I don't think that would be conducive to getting someone to be their authentic self on camera. It's well executed. I'm curious, though, about the co-directing relationship and how that came about and how that worked, what types of decisions you made in advance in terms of who would do what and how you would work together.
2: Well, I initially reached out to Shandine, um, just like looking at her body of work and just like you know, I think like her work is amazing and um, she's so talented and just like having that kind of initial conversation with Shandine and hearing like her own experiences with uh, with her like coming of age ceremony um, and just like her, like it felt like just an immediate kind of connection, um, not only to like the family and um, and their ceremony, but also just like, you know, it felt like early conversations, like we were really on the same page Um, on a lot of things just as far as like our intentions would go. And then I think, like, the process of co-directing, like, especially with someone that you don't, don't know beforehand, is never, like, an easy one. Um, you know, I, I came from co-directing a lot, but with Sam, who's, like, my partner, life partner, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. we have a dog. Yeah. You know, so there's kind of a shorthand there. But, you know, working with Shandine, it was, like, it took a lot of time, energy, and effort. And I think, you know, I'm really proud of us for both putting that energy and effort into it beforehand, Because we're also doing it at a time when it's like the pandemic. Shandin lives in Albuquerque. I live in Los Angeles. So it's a lot of that communication is like done via zoom, and just trying to like not only talk about the film, and what we want to do with the film, but understand each other you know, and, and learn more about each other and kind of like, just get in sync on that sort of film language. Um, and I think getting in sync on that film language, it required maybe a lot more effort, attention and foresight than had one of us directed the film on our own. Um, so I think a lot more thought and love went into the kind of that final product because of the nature of that, that collaboration and there being to us. Hmm.
0: Yeah. It was like a crash course on each other. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like a few months to like, kind of get to know each other, get to know like what we wanted to do and share that artistic space. And like, I like, we're both, both very passionate people, when it comes to our art and like our expression. And so like, I think like I've never co-directed something before. So it was like really odd to kind of share that artistic space with somebody um, and like, kind of like, I guess like pause sometimes and be like, maybe that's not the thing we want to do, but maybe it is. And a lot of listening and hearing each other out. Hmm. And I guess just like finding ways to communicate that better. And I think like it, it took a lot sometimes but then it was also really easy sometimes like there there were things that like we just totally clicked on and it got us excited about like the prospect of shooting and like being there and i think like that's what you want in a crew and like just being able to have that trust and like pass on, I guess, like artistic minds and like, just kind of get it going. And, um, it was like even fun, like on set, like, because usually as a director, you're you're, like really overwhelmed and you're trying to like talk to the subjects or or, like keep in conversation with them, get to know them and like also like direct the crew and like figure out your surroundings and not be like too tunnel visioned.
2: It's kind of lonely.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And here it was like constantly just bouncing ideas off of each other and like being like, "Hey, like I'm gonna go talk to this person if you want to like set this up." Or I, I think it was just like fun to like really be like on the ground and kind of loosely going about.
1: Yeah,
2: I think headsets really helped on set. Of course, like I I, I had a lot of anxiety going into you know the first shoot because it wasn't just. Shandeen and I co-directing together for the first time and figuring out who's doing what. It was also the fact that we were shooting on film, which like from a workflow standpoint, I'd never dealt with before Shandeen had, but I was totally new to me. So just kind of the clunkiness of like ironing all that stuff out. And I think it really just like came over time. It it was just more like the more you would do it together, the more you would sort of like get into a rhythm and a dance with one another, as opposed to saying like, all right, Chandine, like, you know, uh, this can be your thing. This is my thing. Like, you know, so-and-so you do this. I think it was less of like that type of an approach and more so like, just kind of doing that, like nonverbal dance with one another, where, where you just start to kind of feel like where, you know, like leaning on her for this and she, her leaning on me for this. And, and then I think, you know, over time, it just became like, okay, this is awesome. This is great. And there's two of us. And that um, is really a big strength, because someone's always looking out for the next thing, you know, someone's mm-hmm. always like has an eye on something else that's going on. And that's exciting. I, I definitely think directing on your own can be a very lonely experience, hence why I've co directed <laughs> a lot.
1: Yeah. Well, for, for Shandine, I, I would imagine that it was kind of an easy yes in terms of at least wanting to explore the I- idea of working with Rika, Academy Award winning director, you know, a lot of street cred coming in. But you guys work beautifully together. The final product is really beautiful and touching. And I'm excited for both of you and for Sam to see where this thing goes. And I'd love to hear how things go at South by Southwest and beyond. So what are your plans, both of you, in terms of next projects? I know you can't really talk a lot in detail about specific projects that you're working on, but what are you excited about and looking forward to in
2: 2022? Um, I like... I never like to give a clear answer here um mostly because of my own add (laughs) and plans always constantly changing yeah but i think something that i'm really like looking forward to is is just leaning into like some more narrative projects as well i love documentary but i think i'm always like interested in exploring more narrative projects and um really taking the leap to do more long form projects um so like you know developing a couple things here and there um but who knows like what will stick and when it will happen
1: hmm. yeah how about you Shendine?
0: Yeah. uh, I mean, I originally got into film because of the love of narrative filmmaking, and I haven't been able to do that in a long time. So I'm just hopefully using this year to kind of jump back into that and write more and make more time for myself because I've been saying yes to like tons of things and kind of pushed my own thoughts and ideas aside. And so like I'm mostly in narrative. So I'm just like really excited to get back to like, creating worlds like from my mind.
1: Awesome. Yeah. Shandine and Raika, thank you so much for sharing your story about long line of ladies on the podcast and wish you all the best to South by Southwest. Super exciting.
0: Thank you so
2: much. <laughs> As always, very thoughtful interview. Yours are always the best.
1: Oh, thanks Rika. That really means a lot. Hey, thank you for listening. And I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If so, I have a favorite ask. Can you go to wherever you listen to podcasts and leave me a review? Your feedback is what keeps this podcast going. You can also check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook with the handle at DreamPathPod. And as always, go find your dream path.